Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for coming back for another episode of the Stories Podcast. I'm 99% sure we're on episode nine, um, but I'm not looking at my notes right now because I'm so excited today to have our second guest on the podcast. It's kind of like our second and third, which you guys are going to hear about in a little bit. We actually have two guests coming on today. And the, the main focus of the episode is on John Otis Blanding, who is one of my close friends from my time at Auburn. But now he's just, I consider him to be a celebrity in my book, but he is just one of the most impressive people I've ever met. And I don't think I'm alone. I know I'm not alone in saying that. He's going to introduce himself a good bit in a minute, kind of more about his professional background. But what's really important to know is that John uses his academic and professional experiences to create a holistic approach to diversity, equity, and inclusion that reflects the intersectional nature of social identity groups and the systems that they inhabit and ultimately serves as a framework for sustainable change. He, in this episode, we are about to learn different terms. We're about to learn about faith. We're about to learn about, you know, where people find themselves in society, how to manage that. And, you know, his hope is just that this framework will leverage the interconnectivity of his work and liaise between disciplines, industries, and organizations to respond to diversity-related matters in a more effective manner. So it's been really cool to watch him do that professionally and personally. And I think I would be correct in saying that his main goal is to make sure that everybody understands that they have a place at every table. And he wants to be kind of a liaison or a messenger to help people understand where they fit, how they fit, um, and that they fit everywhere. And, and kind of giving people the, the independence and the authority to, to do that for themselves and then to do that for other people should they need it. And we're also going to have, so I, I'm going to talk about this in a little bit, but we're also going to have Josh Wilson on, who is John's partner. And I love the way that they tell stories together and that they amplify each other. So that was kind of a last minute addition. And I, I know it was the right decision. And I'm excited for you guys to hear from them both. And they're going to touch on also how they use their understanding of each other and of themselves to empower women and to empower people of color and those in marginalized groups. And I'm just really excited for you guys to hear, hear this about them. It gets emotional in the very best of ways. You know, I cried, but luckily y'all can't see that. Um, and, and at the end of the episode, they're going to talk about, I really challenge y'all to stick with it to the end because they're going to talk about how you can apply everything they've talked about in your day-to-day -day life, right? So I feel like I hear that a lot. Like people feel really stimulated by these episodes and then they're like, I just don't know what to do now. Like, I don't know what to do with this energy, with these chills, with this, you know, adrenaline rush that's almost coming through you when you hear something really powerful and really inspiring. And they're going to give you the tools and the resources that you need to, to act out the, the truth that they're going to be speaking in your everyday life. I am pumped about this one. And I just, like I said, when I have guests on the episodes, I really want it to feel like a conversation, like those ones that you have where you just wish you could keep it in your pocket and carry around with you everywhere. I want this to serve as that for you. So even though you're not actively speaking in the conversation, I hope you're actively listening and can feel like this is something that you were in the room for. Because while you might not have actually been on the Zoom meeting for it, you specifically were in mind. And I hope that this is beneficial for you. 
Um, like I said, don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. That's really helpful for, for the stories. But always keep in mind, I'm literally just doing this for the benefit of you all and, and to amplify the voices of people that I really admire and care about. So all I want to do is see this podcast grow. And it's been incredible to see the Lord work through the people that I've had on and just through the opportunities that have come through. So thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoy. Okay. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for coming back for another episode of The Stories. Today, we have John Blanding as our next guest, and he is someone that I've admired and looked up to for a really long time, and I know that anybody that knows him would say that they're better because of him. And the reason I'm so excited for this episode honestly has a lot to do with the phone call John and I had last week. So typically before I have guests, I mean the two that I've had, we've had little intro calls beforehand just to make sure that, that everybody's on the same page, that the guest is being able to talk about what they want to talk about. And so, you know, per usual, he was blowing me away with his insight. That's always what happens. But I also got to witness for the first time his partner, Josh, really amplify his voice and storytell with him. So today we have Josh on the line as well. He's kind of our little secret surprise um, for this episode. And I'm really excited for how this conversation is going to go. So if you hear a third voice, that's who it is. Um, I'm excited for you all to hear from him. But back to John, once again, thank you for being our second guest on the stories. And I know it's the day after the Iron Bowl, but how are you doing and how are you feeling about today? I am doing pretty well, honestly. Um, this latter half of the year has been refreshing for sure. Um, we all know that 2020 has been quite the challenge um, for most folks, but um, being able to kind of see my family and friends, um, whether it be virtually or not, has been super refreshing, and I'm honestly just excited to be here. Thank you for having us. Good. I'm so excited. And yes, can you thank just you. Uh, thank you, Josh. And can you just tell me or tell the listeners a little bit about your background and, you know, where are you from? How has that shaped you um, to where you are now? Yeah, so I am John Otis Blanding, uh, a native of Birmingham, Alabama. Um, I graduated from Auburn University and most recently Georgetown University, um, where I received my master's in higher education administration. Um, I currently have the privilege of working as a diversity, equity, and inclusion practitioner. Um, I like to say both professionally and personally. Um, I serve as the program coordinator for diversity initiatives and human resources for Emory University's Department of Medicine. And in this role, I'm essentially tasked with examining institutional policies, practices, and uh, pedagogies and actualizing strategic objectives that center the diverse needs of um, historically underrepresented or marginalized stakeholders, specifically um, Black, Indigenous, Latinx, people of color, and LGBTQ plus community members. Um, and when I share my story or talk more in depth about my career, um, I often have to kind of provide a bit of context just because working in diversity, equity, and inclusion is a relatively new um, space. Mm -hmm. um, but my journey towards a career in DEI has been inspired by um, my life experiences, honestly, as a person with historically underrepresented or marginalized um, and intersecting identities. Um, so I pivoted towards this area of study, like towards the latter half of my career at Auburn, um, as my awareness of the, the, the social constructs that largely um, influence identity development was heightened. Um, 
essentially, as with most of us millennials, uh, my coming of age was framed by a slew of social happenings, mainly those that are centered on like civil and human rights, um, such as the unwarranted and widely broadcasted murders of um, more black folks than I can name, Flint water crisis, um, the election, and honestly, the public persecution of our nation's first black president. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that, and bearing witness to these monumental moments in history, um, it was both traumatic and inspiring, um, especially within the context of what seemed to be an increasingly conservative South um, mm-hmm. and its polarized binary. Um, but yeah, in short, my um, role as a student leader on a predominantly white campus exposed me to uh, the longitudinal and interconnected nature of matters of relating to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and social justice, which is like the umbrella for all of those things. Um, and I have really just had uh, an opportunity to delve a bit deeper um, into this work, um, both professionally and personally, and it's honestly been um, awe-inspiring. So. Um, in essence, or in short, um, a very traditional background has produced an ever-evolving outlook on life and personal social responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to say that over time, the lens through which I view myself, um, my relationship to others, and the positioning of like my Native communities, and ultimately the responsibility or my responsibility to a network of social organizations has evolved and expanded drastically. Um, like I mentioned earlier, our, our lifetime as millennials has been branded by advances in technology and science and thought. Um, and as a result, I think that my perspective of human development and social interaction um, really now leverages a transdisciplinary approach to um, finding or curating solutions uh, for compounded social problems. So I like to look a lot at sociology, like to look a lot at humans and how they develop um, and ultimately how we work together. Um, so yeah, that's a bit of my background. Yeah, and one of the things that amazes me the most that you spoke a bit on this is that, you know, you didn't stop at Auburn, right? So you didn't stop with mm-hmm. those organizations that you were involved in, graduate, you know, start a nine to five, do your own thing. So mm-hmm. what did you see at Auburn that needed to change first? And then why do you think that instead of disappointing you or putting you in a place where you just wanted to, you know, let that go, move somewhere else, um, you know, live mm-hmm. a life that you feel more accepted in and leave a lot of that behind, mm-hmm. you know, what drove you to change that instead of just being disappointed and, and you know, leaving that in the dust? Yeah, honestly, um, I have always known that I had something to contribute to every space that I enter. Um, I think that my parents in general and with my upbringing, I was just reminded to be confident in that sense. Mm -hmm. Um, But specifically my time at Auburn um, was layered for sure. Um, In general, I think that we come to this quote unquote loveliest village on the plains as (laughs) um, bright eyed and bushy tailed young adults looking for essentially a line of best fit in every aspect of our lives, whether it be academically, socially, um, financially, or professionally. And for me, um, my time there often felt like a balancing act between all of those things or aspects. Mm -hmm. Um, I really attempted to control each of those 
um, all while actively involving and developing as a young adult. Um, so really my time at Auburn started um, with me being really a recluse. My mm. first semester at Auburn, I spent most of my time in my dorm room. Um, I did not know anyone. I said my dorm room, I had an apartment. Um, but uh, <laughs> I didn't know anyone. Um, and most of the time I would literally just go to class, come back home and that was it. Um, mm. And I realized that that in and of itself was not um, an effective way to navigate one of the most monumental times of my life. Um, so as a result, I attempted to um, find stability through community. Mm. And that community came through a number of organizations um, and really a process of trial and error with trying to find that line of best fit. Um, coming from Birmingham, Alabama, um, and also coming directly from uh, an international baccalaureate school where I had tons mm -hmm. of folks with different perspectives and different life experiences and getting to Auburn where I could not necessarily pinpoint um, those communities was a major challenge for me and um the advice that i always give to like incoming freshmen or folks that are starting their collegiate careers is um there are tons of opportunities on most campuses that you have to tap into um there is a place for you to fit uh there is a community for you and although at times it can be overwhelming um really putting the work behind like finding that space for yourself is ultimately one of the most definitive things that you can do while in college. Mm -hmm. um, so that is exactly what I did. I, I tried out a few organizations. I can remember specifically um, my freshman year, I um, made it into an FLP, the, the Freshman Leadership Program. I think it's emerged now, mm -hmm. um, or it may have changed since then. Um, but even there, I was not necessarily the most comfortable um, just because I could not really find folks that related directly to me and understood my experiences as a person from a historically underrepresented background. Um, and that was really hard. Um, mm -hmm. That was honestly one of the most eye-opening moments for me because I was like, okay, you, you put yourself out there. You decided that you were going to take hold of this opportunity that you have on honestly, what we know to be a pretty amazing campus um, and a pretty amazing institution. Um, and it's still to no avail, it seems. Um, so from there, I really had to do some introspective thinking, uh, trying to figure out exactly who it was that I was becoming in that moment, which is really challenging, um, but also figuring out what exactly I needed both from the institution and what I wanted to um, garner like post-graduation um yeah. so that is when i decided that i was going to join the black student union um and the folks that i met there um were some of my best friends um became some of my best friends and we ultimately were able to develop a community um through the black student union that um cultivated me and nurtured me during my time at auburn um and really became the launch pad for um, both my personal and pro professional trajectory. Um, so yeah, the, the experience at Auburn was layered for sure. Mm -hmm. um, you deal with those things as an incoming 
uh, freshmen or young adult that are natural, like the, the fear and anxiety of having to navigate a campus of X, X thousands of folks. Um, but you also have, for me at least, um, this added layer, which was me finally having the freedom from my um, home, my family to really explore who it was that I knew John to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was another challenging part of that experience. And yeah. I think Josh can also speak to that for sure. Um, but really like the compounded effect of all of that was really overwhelming. And that's why I stress the fact that it's so important that we um, really tap into those communities and those opportunities on campus that are befitting for our personal selves. Mm. Yeah, um, for sure. I um, yeah, what, completely agree. Like, I, um, I'm much like John when I first arrived at Auburn a year prior to um, the first organization that I joined was FLP. And mm-hmm. um, I did find myself in one of those situations where um, I was searching actively for people that I could right. identify with. Um, and I can say that, honestly, I wasn't really able to find that um, my first couple of months at Auburn. Um, and I'm not sure if it was a matter of uh, there not being enough visibility on Auburn's campus for organizations that um, really catered to people of color um, or not. But I did find it very difficult when I first got there to kind of find my way. Um, it's interesting when you first arrive at Auburn, um, you see a lot of people that are already on track to becoming who they want to be, almost as if yes. they had it yeah. planned out before they even got out there. Um, it's like almost as if they found out when they were born, you know? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, you have people that are already destined to be a part of certain organizations, they're already gunning mm-hmm. for specific roles. Um, I actually had the privilege of moving into my dorm room in the Hill. Shout out to the Hill. Um, <laughs> I had the... Uh, the privilege of moving into my dorm room a week earlier than everyone else. Um, And so I was present for um, Rush and it was something that I had never experienced before. And I was wondering like, why are all these girls here so early? And, you know, they're, they're going to the village. If you don't know, the village is where all the girls will go to like Rush, I assume. Um, And it it was just very interesting to me to see that because um, there weren't many people of color within those environments. Mm -hmm. Um, But not just that, but just, the idea that there was already communities and entities set up for um, specific people on Auburn's campus that maybe not the general population of students knew about. Um, It took months for me to actually come into a place to where I felt like I was um, around people like me, around those that shared the same ideals and the same um, aspirations and goals as I did. Um, Mm -hmm. Not to say that that that's by any fault of Auburn's administration specifically, but I did find it a little bit difficult um, really leaning into the Auburn experience and the Auburn family because there weren't really that many spaces that I felt comfortable enough joining and being a part of. Um, And as time went on, you know, I learned more about what the campus had to offer, such as BSU and um, the historically uh, Black fraternities and sororities, which I was privilege to become a part of, as was John. That's actually where I met John. Um, And it was within those spaces that (laughs) my Auburn experience became uh, unique and that it became something that I was very much so proud of. Um, 
So and it's I, so funny. Yeah. It's so funny that like from there, um, there is like an automatic switch for us. Like once we find our community and once we like essentially get our footing at Auburn, we immediately become like the ambassadors for like black folks essentially. And right. we, I think self-assign um, tasks and recruitment efforts to ourselves in an attempt to ultimately ensure that the next generation of um, historically underrepresented folks don't share that same experience as us. And mm. that in and of itself adds another layer, you know, like I think yeah. honestly a large motivation for us getting involved um, in these spaces that were um, not as widely broadcasted or specific to um, cultural groups was inspired by the fact that we wanted to see um, the change that would have ultimately laid the foundation for us in the beginning. Like we wanted to see um, representation and visibility across campus so that um, students who were coming to visit um, were felt comfortable and were inspired to come to the institution. And mm -hmm. that in and of itself was a large part of our Auburn experience. Um, and it's so interesting that we take on all of these different roles and are ultimately like stretching ourselves thin, trying to achieve um, mm. these, these like goals um, with historically underrepresented groups in mind. Um, and I, I just think that is so interesting. Like, I think back to my decision to uh, pursue WEGP, which is the War Eagle Girls in Plainsman, for those of you who may not know. Mm -hmm. um, and a large the part the of my outfits. reason yeah, the, the corny orange jacket folks, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and that's where I met Bria. And well, we didn't meet there, but we met with BSU. But that's where we really, really got to know each other. And honestly, yeah. like, it was one of the best times of my life, because I was able to um, get to know folks that I had never met before. But I was also able to use that as an opportunity to um, reach out to prospective students um, that look like me, that shared the same experience as me, um, and let them know that ultimately you are welcome here on this campus. You have the opportunity to um, achieve this, what we on Auburn's campus presume to be such a high esteem, um, and that ultimately you would have a community at Auburn. And I tried my best with WEGP even to like anytime that I saw like students coming from specific areas um, such as the Lochapoca High School like mm -hmm. I really wanted to make a point um, that I was there to support them um, and to ultimately like cultivate that sense of belonging for them um, so my like in short our experiences at Auburn were so layered um, and honestly each of those experiences contributed to um, where I am now and the reason for uh, me pursuing uh, this specific discipline or area of study. Yeah, and I think you make a good point. It's like when I feel like when you're black and in an organization at Auburn or really in anything at Auburn, all of a sudden you're like, well, I can't just be a member. Like I've got to really make sure yeah. that I'm I'm making mm -hmm. my way as high up as I can so that other people see me, so that other people feel welcome here, so that I, they know I exist, right? Because right, I felt, right. you know, that way, you know, in a very different way with my sorority, which is a mm -hmm. historically white sorority, 
you know, I was in there just as a member and I felt really, really alone in that my freshman year. At the Mm -hmm. time, I don't know that I really had a term for it, but I, I, you know, detached because I was just like, well, I'm the only one, like I detached a little bit. Um, but then, you know, story I've talked about on one episode before something happened that made me realize, you know, I need to get out of this or I need to get somewhere so that people can see me so that I can change what this looks like. Right. And I Mm -hmm. feel like, you know, I feel like, and I don't know if you guys feel this way, but I even feel myself doing that now, right. In the professional sphere, like moving out, it's not just Auburn. It's almost like in every space you're in, you're like, okay, how can Mm -hmm. I make sure that everyone feels welcome here? How can I make sure that, because you know, no one wants to do that alone you know, because it's a pretty Mm -hmm. like lonely way to be. Um, And what's funny too, something I was thinking about, John, when I met you, I felt like, it's funny how you, I've never really heard you talk about your freshman year. And obviously Mm -hmm. I didn't know you then, but when I met you, I felt like you had it. I felt like you were one of those people that had everything planned out and you had it all together. Oh, no, Uh, no, 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 no. Which is so funny. (laughs) And so Josh, a question I have for you to put you on the spot a little bit, could you sense that John was looking for community or did you also feel like he just kind of had it all together or did, could you tell that he was looking for something more? Um, so when I first met John, I met him under some specific circumstances. Right. Um, right, right. We both, <laughs> Which I know we can't talk about. But. Right. So, um, when I, but, but to speak to the question that you asked when I did, when I, when I met him and I began to get to know him, if you guys don't understand what I'm saying, we, me and John, um, pledge together <laughs> essentially yeah. or we rush together depending on you know what your terminology is preferred but um so when I first met him um I did kind of get that sense that he had it all together I actually thought he was a little bit arrogant I felt that he um yeah he didn't like me at first I didn't we yeah. were not <laughs> friends <laughs> I didn't like him I felt like he was a little bit and he's not arrogant anyway he's probably one no. of the most humble people I've ever met in my entire life but mm. the way he carried himself was with such assurance um and and just like he knew who he was um yeah. and what he wanted out of Auburn out of life um and that was I, I I think that's just how a lot of um black students on Auburn campus have to carry themselves mm-hmm. um we have to uh portray students that are excelling um above all the rest we are mm-hmm. obviously putting in a little bit more effort than maybe the traditional student to make sure that we are seen to make sure that we are being represented and I felt that he was very much so in control of his narrative in control of Mm. um things that he had going on in his life um come to find out and getting to know him just like anyone else on Auburn's campus everything wasn't sweet and everything Mm -hmm. wasn't perfect perfect but I did see that sense that John was always trying to uh represent um himself and his Mm -hmm. culture and his beliefs in the most um, straightforward and and progressive way possible. Um, And that's, Mm -hmm. I think, one of the things that also really uh, helped me to gravitate towards him was his, um, just his pure, like, genuine spirit and the way that, you know, he discussed the politics of the university, the way that he discussed um, the issues that were facing people of color, the way that he um, carried his conversations and the kinds of um, decisions that he would make um, just the entire way that he moved was just very fascinating to me um, because he did seem like someone who was very well put together and who really knew, like, was very um, aware of who he was. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to speak to the fact that a lot of times as students of color at Auburn's campus, we kind of had to put on that facade. 
yeah. um, as not to show weakness or to show that we were just as capable of any other student. Um, and that was one of the things that um, rushing with John, like kind of revealed to me that, you know, a lot of times he didn't always have it all together. He didn't always have all the answers. Um, and he didn't always know what to do, but he still felt that pressure to, um, to be exactly. that person, mm-hmm. you know? So mm-hmm. I think that it's, it's like, you know, like I keep going, he keeps going back to the Auburn experience being very, very layered. Um, those were parts of our experience that a lot of people didn't know about. Um, but as, like I said, as far as meeting him for the first time, you know, after I got over my little whatever, how I felt about him and everything like that, um, mm-hmm. I did grow to see all of those amazing qualities in him, like right off the bat. Yeah, yeah, that makes complete sense. That was sweet, too. Um, but <laughs> I, I, I completely agree, Josh, you make a good point in just being, and you know, in Auburn and outside of Auburn, as a person of color, I feel like you always, you feel like you have to carry yourself you feel like you have to be perfect all the time, right? Like no Mm -hmm. one can see you break. No one can see, you know, maybe now more professionally, you too personally, right? But you want to be personable. So you want people Mm -hmm. to feel like they can come to you. You want people to like you, but you also want to make sure that you're keeping everyone at a a safe distance, I feel like, so that they don't see you when you fail or when you're sad or when you're disappointed um, or when you mess up, you know what I mean? And, Mm -hmm. And I think it's something that, we've probably always carried, but it was really highlighted Mm -hmm. at Auburn in a way where, and John, you talked about stretching yourself so thin, like to the point where like you're sacrificing sleep, you're sacrificing food because you have to have the best grades in all your classes and do everything that you're doing and somehow stay awake. You know what I mean? And it's Mm -hmm. just, it's something that I think you carry on. And I also like Josh, how you were talking about how John seemed like he was in control of his narrative and in a lot of ways, I, I, you know, if I had to describe John to people, I understand he's a human, but like, he's like a superhuman. Like, I really feel like you're still <laughs> so in control of your narrative. And that's such a, I've never heard it described that way, but you kind of just gave me the words for that. Um, and it kind of leads into like my next question. And John, I know I asked you this on the phone last week, but your mm-hmm. answer was just so intense, but I, I felt like I didn't get to hear the whole thing. So it's kind of yeah. like a, a situational question. So, you know, if you had your own podcast, what do you think you'd want to share right now? Like say this was your episode. Um, what would you want to share? Is there anything that's been on your heart lately that, that you want to carry over to people kind of past that Auburn experience? Yeah. Um, honestly, like within the past year um, and I, I'd say within the past two years or so, Um, intersectionality, um, a term coined by the amazing Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, It has taken on a meaning that has really allowed me to begin making sense of life and its complexities. And honestly, it's been so much of a part of my story uh, within these last two years that that would definitely have to be what I covered in a podcast. Quite frankly, I have begun to appreciate the expansive nature of the term, which ultimately suggests that we are complex human beings um, with diverse identities that ultimately intersect and layer on top of one another um, and ultimately define our entire life experience. And even when I begin to think deeper into that, I'm able to look at the social systems and structures that are at play in our lives and how they even begin to intersect. Um, And a lot of my work is really on pinpointing um, where those intersections are, how they ultimately affect 
um, the stakeholders that I serve. And it leads me into this cycle of sorts that ultimately like connects, connects every aspect of life. Um, but really in the sense of, or in regards to um, historically underrepresented or marginalized social identity groups, um, it paints a picture that illuminates the um, what seems to be never ending struggle for um, Black, Indigenous, Latinx, people of color, um, and the LGBTQ plus community. Um, it is a term that really captures the vastness of our identities, um, but also kind of illuminates the um, incessant like struggle uh, within our community. And quite frankly, within this last year, like especially seeing, take for instance, um, the murder of Breonna Taylor, um, mm -hmm. witnessing that and seeing the complexities of the specific situation that not only affects Black folks, but it affects women. And it speaks to um, policing and law enforcement, but it also speaks to um, the general culture of our society. Like all of these different facets come together and are all at play at the exact same time in the very same way that every aspect of my identity is at play at the exact same time. And neither of them take precedence. Um, I'm not black before I am gay. Mm -hmm. I'm not Christian before I am black or like, you feel what I'm saying? Like all, mm -hmm. all of these different things are simultaneously like contributing to my life experience. And mm. I can tell you like there have been some points within this last year where the weight of all of those things really, uh, it took me to a place that was hard to come out of. Um, so like that would definitely have to be something that I give lots and lots of attention to, um, especially because I'm in a place where I'm still exploring um, what exactly that means to me and how that is at play in my life. Um, yeah, do you have anything to add, Mr. Josh? I mean, I agree. Like, if I was to put you, if you were to have your own podcast, I definitely would assume that that was what you um, would speak on the most. And, you know, that term of intersectionality, intersecting identities is something that um, is very interesting to me. And it, it was something that was introduced to me by you, John. Um, and it's, it, I think a lot of people don't understand that every single last person has an intersecting identity. It's almost mm -hmm. the pieces that make up who you are. Um, and when you think about it in that sense, you know, that you're not one thing over the other, you're not, I'm not specifically gay before I am black. And like you said, I'm not specifically Christian before I am black or vice versa. Um, it really puts into perspective, um, just the state that we are in as a society, because a lot of people want to place a specific label over the other, you know, like, um, if you are black and Christian, then you can't be gay. You know, if you are... A uh, gay and black, you can't be a Christian. Like it's, it, it, it just, it, it, it's very interesting um, when you break down what uh, intersecting identity is, um, and 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 how you specifically have one, like within yourself. It's uh, very interesting to see like how similar we are in a sense. You know, I don't think anybody would um, would would say that you know just because they think a certain way or act a certain way that that makes them a certain type of person um that's mm -hmm. just a part of who they are um and i think if a lot of 
people would kind of understand that everybody is unique. Everybody has intersecting identities that intersect with each other. There's something that um, you, Bria and I all have that is similar. And although we may not have the same sexual orientation, we might not um, you know, practice the same religion, we do have similarities. Um, and every human, every person has similarities and things that, that make us one and unique. And I yeah. feel like it will be more important, um, more beneficial for our society as a whole to dwell more on the things that make us the same opposed to the things that make us different. And I feel like you're one of those thought leaders that kind of are, is progressing that conversation to, to understand, yes, we do need to know the things that separate us and the things that, you know, make us unique, but we need to do all more on the things that, that unite us and bring us together as a culture, you know, as a, as a, as a nation, as a planet, you know, I yeah. think if people thought more in that, uh, with that worldview or that, that point of view, um, it would be a lot easier for us to understand one another. It would be a lot easier for men to understand the plight of women. It would be a lot easier for, um, people of, um, heterosexual orientation to understand people of the LGBTQIA plus community. Um, and we're still working towards that progress and things like that. But mm -hmm. when people break it down, it's a lot simpler than they think. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And honestly, and some, taking okay. that a step further um, mm -hmm. with intersectionality and ultimately like delving a bit deeper into who you are and, and the aspects or parts of your identity comes positioning all of those parts in a larger social scheme and positionality has also been a major like topic uh at hand for me in this last year um specifically because it takes like this work um a step further if you're able to recognize um where you fall on a spectrum of josh and i really look at like the world in from the vantage point of systems of power and privilege because they really define mm. the way that we do um, social interaction. Um, but if you look at the position that you fall on, on this, you can literally look at, look at an imaginary timeline or spectrum um, and recognize like the privileges and the power that you do have, um, but also recognize how that ultimately um, plays in the larger like or the grand scheme of things uh you're able to really recognize like the social responsibility that you do ultimately have um and that has been something that has been ongoing for me um i think that specifically in diversity equity and inclusion we often look at an end goal as if it is this one something one concrete or uh tangible program or practice that is ultimately going to solve um, all of our issues. And honestly, that's how a lot of folks look at social justice work. You know, mm -hmm. we look at this past election and say, okay, we got out, we canvassed, we did what we needed to do in our communities to make sure that um, we were uh, secure at the polling sites. Um, yeah. And we expect, like, after that November 3rd election, um, that things are gonna be peaches and cream. And what we have to understand that it's an ongoing effort. Literally like this is not just my professional work, but it's like my life's work. And I mm. have begun to recognize like how much it actually takes for me to, even within myself, learn and unlearn all of those things that ultimately make um, my positioning in society and my social responsibility more effective. Mm. Um, 
but also like really delving deep into just those systems that have been at play for or since the beginning of time. Um, yeah. And that it's really been, we have lots and lots of conversations that ultimately end up becoming these loopholes or rabbit trails that we, um, <laughs> we venture down, but it has really been an illuminating experience just being able to recognize those two things, what intersectionality are or what intersectionality is um, to us and how our position or positioning um, ultimately affects that. Mm -hmm. And with coming with intersectionality and positionality, understanding that about yourself, how mm -hmm. has that helped you? Do, or do you feel like that's helped you empower others? Do you feel like it's helped you empower women? Um, and how so? Like, how does understanding your place help you bring other people to where you are? Absolutely. Um, honestly, as a person from um, a couple historically underrepresented or marginalized groups, yeah. um, I have really begun to, like I mentioned earlier, recognize the systems of power and privilege that are at play. And awareness, honestly, has been the catalyst for transformation yeah. um, in terms of thought and in terms of my response um, or action uh, in that, you know. Um, mm. And it's required a great deal of humility and honesty and dedication. Um, I mm. can say that I was raised by um, several strong Black women, and I was able to recognize, even as a uh, an adolescent, um, how their struggles, um, how their experiences were similar to mine, but also very much so different. Um, and throughout my lifetime, I have really tried to have a keen awareness for um, those experiences just because I was surrounded by it um, at all times. And that has really, um, sh like, influence the way that I think about um, my role in terms of uh, my relationship to others. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's very important for everyone, um, but specifically men, um, to recognize those systems that are at play. Um, and it's a very difficult process. I can't even flex. Like it is something that takes a great deal of introspection. Um, it takes a great deal of uh understanding and you really have to remove yourself and your personal convictions mm -hmm. from the scenario in order to really understand um what is exact or what exactly the implications are um in this situation and i think most importantly more than anything it takes listening um, mm -hmm. i have several women um that are in my life and i trust um, with my life, honestly, um, and in hearing their experiences or in hearing um, aspects, whether they be uh, new or old, um, of their experience, I've been able to really paint a picture in my head that um, takes all of those pieces and puts them together. And it's like fitting together a puzzle, you know. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, that that has been something that has really inspired um my ultimately the charge that i have placed on myself to empower women and indigenous folks and latinx folks and folks that have 
often uh, remained at the, the the margins of our society. And I think it also needs to be said that um, you know we we all have our specific privileges, um, and when it comes to acknowledging those privileges, so that you can kind of understand someone else's place in the world. Um, I think a lot of people feel that like if they were to acknowledge those things um, about themselves that, you know, maybe they play into a specific, um, you know, they play into something that might not be uh, who they feel like they are. Um, it kind of almost invalidates their experiences or it makes it seem as though, you know, a lot of people, you know, just to give example to what I'm trying to say, like a lot of people, you know, have um, a hard time understanding the struggle between like, um, men and women and how um, women do have certain struggles and things that they go through that um, men do not have to go through, um, specifically mm -hmm. black men. And I know that it can be very difficult for, um, you know, black men who are already targeted in a, 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 in a lot of different ways to attest to the fact that women are still more, even more underrepresented and, and can be even more targeted than them. Um, it's, it, it almost sometimes feels like if I were to admit that or if I were to speak to that, um, that it's invalidating, you know, my experience as a black man in this world and the things that I have to go through. But a lot of people have to understand that when it comes to kind of checking your privilege and understanding uh, where your privilege comes from and how your privilege works, that it's not, you know, invalidating one person or another, but it's just um, a means to come to a better understanding of those who are not like you. Um, I, I think that a lot, if a lot of people were able to acknowledge, you know, the places where they might have a leg up or where, you know, say they, they may not have to struggle with a certain thing that maybe a woman has to struggle with um, and understand that, you know, there are systems that have been set up to prevent um, women and people of other diverse backgrounds from from thriving and from reaching their goals and becoming the people that they want to be, it would be a little bit easier, you know, if they were to acknowledge those things that make it a little bit easier for them. Um, we could all kind of come to a place to where we understand each other and have that kind of respect for each other, opposed to kind of, you know, in a sense, you know, invalidating someone else's experience um, just because you're unwilling to acknowledge the privilege that you have, you know? So yeah. I think like all of these concepts and all of these things specifically, like, you know, I, John, I know John mentioned like the loophole we go down when we have these conversations. Like, I think that these conversations are extremely, extremely beneficial um, because it helps people to understand that there's no shame in admitting where, you know what I'm saying, things might be off or where um, things might be wrong. There's no shame in understanding like uh, what you can do to make things better for other people. Um, it's that in, a, in, in, um, inability to acknowledge certain things that causes the problem, in my opinion. Um, right. But acknowledgement is the first step, you know, for me to say that, you know, although I am, you know, a black male, a black gay male living in, you know, this society, I do have a lot of things against me, you know, when I walk out the door, um, you know, I do kind of have a chip on my shoulder at sometimes because, you know, if I get pulled over by a cop or if I walk inside of a certain establishment, you know, I may be stereotyped against or I may be discriminated against. But um, I also have to acknowledge that, um, you know, women of color have even more of a chip on their shoulder when they walk out the door, because not only could they possibly be, um, you know, feel some type of way about being pulled over about a, by a cop or 
being discriminated against when they walk into an establishment, but they could also have feelings about, you know, their safety and, and, and being treated the way that they should be treated and things like that. And that's something that I can't say that I've ever worried about, <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. I can't say that I've ever had those issues. So me acknowledging my privilege and saying that, you know, there are some things that I don't have to go through that maybe my sister Bria has to go through or my little sister London has to go through is me um, kind of opening up that door for communication, opening up that door for understanding and ultimately um, helping the cause towards equality in a sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's absolutely true. And I think I love the idea of, you know, awareness being the catalyst for transformation, right? Because it's mm-hmm. something that understanding that even though we might not have the same experiences, validating them as truth, and then making sure that you're doing everything you can to, to help your brother and your sister and to help other people understand, you know what I mean? And right. kind of have that awareness for themselves. Cause I think a lot of people just kind of take themselves out of the conversation because they're like, you know, what? I'm never going to under- understand this person's experiences. Mm-hmm. I don't have anything to contribute. Um, and I think it's right. the complete opposite. And I think, and I hope listening to conversations like this helps people recognize, you know, I might not have felt this, but I heard it. You know what I mean? And I care mm-hmm. enough about my fellow man and woman to, to protect them in that. And it also right. kind of makes me think, you know, has understanding this intersectionality, um, has it impacted your faith? And if so, you know, how did it do that? Or your, your relationship with religion and with God? Yes, that is a, a doozy right there. Mm-hmm. Um, it intersectionality, my intersecting identity has most certainly um, impacted uh, my relationship to religion. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm a preacher's kid. Um, Taking it a step further, I'm a Pentecostal uh, preacher's Mm -hmm. kid, meaning that I'm very familiar with um, the fire and brimstone kind of gospel. And throughout my life, I've kind of always been an independent thinker. Um, So in spite of the rather um, strict or non-conformist attitude of uh, my religious upbringing, I was able to discern like really who and what um, God was to me. And that understanding thankfully served as the foundation for my faith and my spirituality. Um, However, my relationship with religion, um, specifically Christianity, um, has changed substantially. Um, even in this year alone. Um, Straight up, it's been challenging to acknowledge and appreciate um, a religion that has been essentially weaponized to the degree that Christianity has um, historically by who we know to be imperfect, um, yet fully aware and accountable human beings. Um, I recognize the unadulterated biblical truth, um, the B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. Um, I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Um, but I've also recognized the unwavering faith um, that we believe scripture has prescribed or commanded. Um, but in the same breath, I believe that, that honestly, when taken out of context or examined at surface level without thoughtful interpretation or without the consideration of intersecting identities and the diverse experiences of even folks that are Christian, um, we've ultimately produced a a collection of, I'd say like exclusionary, um, dismissive, and 
really biased practices and beliefs. And that's been a major, major challenge for me, mm-hmm. um, especially when I am taking my work as a diversity practitioner, but also mm-hmm. taking my um, religious upbringing and the faith that I um, have developed throughout that time. So I really began to, to question at what cost do we uphold our personal convictions? Um, I think that we've witnessed the suppressive nature of our modern day Christian values that I want to reiterate um, have been designed or um, created by imperfect people. Um, yet I feel like we continue to hide them behind a veil of sorts, um, disguising their real life implications and disguising the hurt um, that is therefore imposed on groups of people and has been throughout history. Um, I feel like these efforts to um, tell our one like biblical truth uh, without leaving room for anything else has really been the thing that strained my relationship with religion because mm-hmm. it's ultimately telling me that I can't even exist, um, that my experiences are not valid. Um, so I'm now in a space where I, honestly, I'm completely uninterested in um, any sort of organized religion that further marginalize the most vulnerable populations. Um, those populations mm-hmm. that we as Christians have seen um, and and learned from even through scripture, you know. Um, so I'm I question a ton at this point. Um, but like I mentioned earlier, like I know that I've felt and experienced um my God um before. Um, so that relationship remains consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, but how it's ultimately been manifested and how we've ultimately been socialized um, through religion um, has been something that Josh and I, um, and honestly, I've seen quite a few folks um, within my community begin to really um, examine and interrogate. And I don't know, it. this has been the weirdest year ever. <laughs> um, I feel like Period. so much has been exposed. Yeah. <laughs> So much has been exposed. Uh, our awareness has been um, refined to such a degree. Mm-hmm. And we're now beginning to look at um, these age old uh, systems and institutions that have really um, defined, whether for good or for bad, um, mm-hmm. our life experiences. And that's mm-hmm. been a major challenge for me. I can remember specifically, like, um, my folks are, um, they have been raised in the church their entire lives, uh, as was I. Um, and I want to pause for a brief moment and really recognize the fact that I do honor and respect, um, Christianity. And like I mentioned, I, I've always been the sort of Christian that it goes off of feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very, mm-hmm. I, I find myself to be very in tune with um, my relationship with God, because I try to keep it 100, you know, like Mm -hmm. I'm never going before him, um, with the intent to put on a facade or put on, um, a show. Um, 
or the attempt to to showcase or broadcast my most perfect self. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm really confident in that aspect of my relationship um, with, I guess, spirituality more so. Um, but it has been very challenging um, witnessing how ultimately we can allow our religious convictions or beliefs or practices to completely like throw rationale out the window. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. in my um, coming out to my family, um, I knew that it would be a major challenge. I knew that it would be something that was brand new to them um, and that was quite frankly shunned upon um, as a result of their um, religious you know, beliefs. Um, and one of the things that was most challenging for me, going back to intersectionality, was the fact that um, it seemed as if my sexuality was um, not tied to my faith prior to coming out, but immediately thereafter, um, because I am now proclaiming myself to be a gay Black man, um, my faith is now in question. And that was such a challenge for me. And one of the things that I had to articulate to um, my folks who I love dearly and who have been honestly um, very like accepting and trying their best to uh, make sense of um, this new aspect of our lives. Mm -hmm. Um, But one of the things that I had to explain to them Um, was the fact that I did not necessarily think that it was fair for those two things to be tied together in the way that it had been. Mm -hmm. Um, And I even took it a step further and began to explain how being a person from a historically marginalized social identity group, I had no choice but to turn to God because who else could I turn Mm -hmm. to, you know? And as a result, my faith was strengthened through that experience, through same, um, same. Mm-hmm. me like recognizing that this was something that was not going away. Um, mm-hmm. I literally, even as a kid, used to pray like, Lord, take this away from me, you know? And I, I feel like a lot of folks from the LGBTQ plus community have shared those same experiences. Oh yeah, that's the age um, of prayer, honey. Yeah, yeah, especially those of us who have like grown up um, in any sort of religion. Um, and I had to explain to them really that this was something that drew me closer to God. This was something that strengthened my faith. Mm-hmm. And as a result, um, they were able to to really begin like thinking a bit deeper about um, religion's role in our lives, in my life. Um, and that in and of itself has like been illuminating. Um, so in short, uh, intersectionality (laughs) and (laughs) the uh, Christian experience or my Christian experience, um, have been tied together from the very start, um, (laughs) dating back to the first time that, um, I knew that I was not like everybody else, you know? Um, and I, I think that Josh, you can say the same for sure. Oh yes. Um, honestly, you hit it on the nail. Like you hit the 
you hit it like it that is that has been my experience literally the same experience um with, with a couple of different variations you know um i feel that when it comes to religion a lot of uh people who practice the christian faith um fail to practice um what they know to be um the core concepts of what we are taught and they fail to practice those things when it comes to specific social groups you know mm -hmm. um specifically those who are of the lgbtqia community um when it comes to us all that kind of goes out the window and that was something that i really um, struggled with coming up um i didn't really come out to my parents until i was 21 um years of age but it's so funny. Um, I'm also a preacher's kid. My dad is an ordained minister. My mother grew up in the uh, apost apostolic faith, which is pretty much like synonymous with the uh, Pentecostal Kojic faith. And um, it was a very strict upbringing as far as like um, church is concerned. You know, we went to church at least two to three times a week. And oh yeah, we were very, um, we had a lot of pressure on us to be um, not perfect, but to uphold the qualities and uh, the teachings of the Bible and the foundation that our family had set for us. Um, and so when it came to the point to where I was going to come out, decided to have to come out to my parents, it's very unfortunate that I had to essentially cut all ties with them emotionally and physically and spiritually within myself before making that decision. Um, because I needed to be prepared for whatever could happen if I was to come out to them. And that's the, that's the plight of a lot of um uh people like john and i who feel like you know we 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 hide who we are we hide our truth and we we do this because our entire lives we're taught that everything about us is completely wrong um no one ever speaks to our humanity um people rarely speak to our intersecting intersecting identities um and it almost labels us as the only thing we are are gay people in an, in a right. sense uh, sinners or people that are not worthy of God's grace and things like that. So um, when I came out to my parents, you know, I, I was very, very nervous about doing that. And and honestly had to happen. It was kind of like jumping off of a cliff, like the moment mm -hmm. presented itself during a conversation with my mother and my brother. And I just had to take it. It was like now or never. And it's so funny because the reason that I jumped off the cliff was because I had been dwelling and praying on this for months mm -hmm. prior to, and the Lord kept bringing it to my heart. That's what I feel, that the Lord just kept bringing the idea to my heart. Every time I would pray about it, every time I would think on it, it wasn't a, a matter of, you know, am I gonna keep suppressing this? It was just like, I think it's time. You know, that was what would come from my prayers. That was what would come from my meditation. I think it's time, I think it's time, I think it's time. So by the time I actually got to that point, I was very, very nervous about what would possibly happen. So when I uttered the words, um, the reaction I got wasn't what I expected. You know, it was one of a, a little bit of shock, but I really appreciate the fact that my parents um, just kind of took the opportunity to have a discussion with me. Was everything perfect? No, not necessarily. And I can honestly say that um, it's been about four or five years since I came out to my parents and I've only discussed this, the, my sexuality with my father um, during that five year span. It wasn't discussed mm -hmm. 
again after the fact. Um, and he wasn't even present when I came out. Um, one thing I appreciate about them though, is that they took the approach of love. They decided to exercise the things that they had been taught and the foundation that Christianity had provided um, in the proper way, which was to love, to seek understanding, not to judge those basic principles that I feel like a lot of our parents and a lot of the people that come into the knowledge of who we are fail to remember. Um, and that's something that I'll always be very appreciative for. But yeah. could I say that I am the same Christian that I was pre-21 now? Uh, absolutely not. Um, do I practice my religion now? I don't. Um, I feel that I am on a spiritual journey and that I don't really prescribe to a specific religion, although I do claim to be, you know, uh, one of the Christian faith. That is, I have a completely different, def different definition for what that means to me than what that may mean to someone of the church. And um, that was produced by this um, institution that made me, that marginalized me. It made me feel that I wasn't welcome or that I couldn't be myself, that I couldn't express myself. Um, that was produced by the constant condemnation of um, LGBTQ, pe uh, LGBTQ people. Um, that was produced by um, the stress and the heartache that I went through coming up, um, pleading and praying for, um, you know, God, to change these things about me and that that um, that relief never actually coming. Um, now I'm in a space to where um, my, my faith, much like John's, is based off of feeling because it was never based off of anything else. It was always based off of a feeling, um, my experience with God, my personal experience with God. And that's the only thing I hold to, you know? And there's been ups and downs, of course, you know, there's been times where, you know, I didn't pray, there's been times where, I denounce my faith, but I always find myself coming back to God um, and coming back even stronger than before. And that's because I had to learn to um, develop a relationship with faith um, that was based off of me and me alone. It wasn't based off of what my institution taught me. It wasn't based off of, you know, even what the Bible specifically says about this, that, and the other, but based solely off of me and what I know to be true to myself. I've always felt that I had enough of a connection with the Lord to be able to discern if there was something that I was doing that was not um, pleasing unto him. And me living my full truth and me being who I am, um, it's, it, it, it's not one of those things that I ever felt, uh, well, that I've come to feel is not pleasing to God. It's actually something that I feel that um, he, he is leading all of his people to do, is to know him for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and in walking in that light, I have been able to uh, find a lot of comfort and relief um, knowing that I am loved by my family, knowing that I am loved by my circle and my friends, and knowing that um, anything that is opposed to that love or anything that tries to condemn that love or my love for um, my partner um, is just something that doesn't have a place in my life, you know? Mm -hmm. so. That's kind of just how the 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 cars have fallen for me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Lots and lots of learning and unlearning 
Um, yes. Like mm. even in retelling those stories, it is um, pretty chilling to think about the experiences that we've carried from adolescence. I'm talking 12 and 13 years old up until now. Um, mm. As a result of um, our or the religious practices that we've been like brought up in. And um, I don't know, it, it's, I always revert back to um, a very simple prayer um, that I prayed since I was a kid, which was, is um, God make me the man that you want me to be, make me the person that you want me to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that humility, that openness and honesty, the same humility, open and openness and honesty that we have to use when navigating um, society and our position in relation to others who may not share the same uh, privileges. Um, that's the the same sort of energy that I take to God. You know, um, I have learned um, that shying away from any aspect of my identity serves no one. Um, mm. Shying away from um, what I know to be my personal truth is ultimately a uh, slap in the face to myself. Mm-hmm. And literally like we could go on and on about our uh, stories, but like my coming out story was just a few short months ago, <laughs> literally like May. Um, mm-hmm. And prior to, um, I operated in silence, I operated in fear. And um, in that space, I honestly was the most distant from God, you know, in Mm -hmm. trying to um, shy away from or suppress um, those aspects of my identity. I was really like not honoring who he is to me um, and the relationship that we have developed over time. And after the fact, was the freest and most liberated that I've ever felt. Um, And it was the closest that I've ever felt to uh, him, to my spirituality. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it has been a roller coaster ride for sure. Um, And even down to like figuring out um, the churches that we would attend or the sermons that we would listen, listen to, um has just been one of the most difficult challenges ever Mm. um just because like we really have no community within the church you know um and understanding and knowing that there are so many folks like us in the church that often have been silenced to such a degree um that they are complicit or um comfortable in that um has been heartbreaking for sure and um i'm just ever so thankful for a a spiritual backbone um and a relationship that is um as truthful truthful as it could possibly be um and our ears are always open our eyes are always open and we pray for discernment all the time um when it comes to any aspect of our lives, but specifically to this degree, um, 
so now more than ever before, um, do we feel the most comfortable uh, with our intersecting identities, with our spirituality and our faith. Um, and we understand that this is, as with most things, a process and an evolving um, something, you know? Um, so yeah, it's, boy, oh boy, it's been a, mm. a, a ride for sure. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, we as believers are always going to examine and interrogate our faith. Like, I don't think this is going to be the end, you know, as our lives mm -hmm. go through peaks and valleys. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's going to come back when you have children. It's going to come back mm -hmm. when, mm -hmm. you know, you're going through those those larger than life things. And, and I don't think that's a bad thing so long as like you were mm -hmm. saying, you know, your God um, and you let him guide you. And mm -hmm. I think it's really hard to understand the line between his word and the lines that have been drawn by man. And then right. if man got it right, right? Because mm -hmm. it's just, there's all mm -hmm. these different levels, but exactly. I love you both. And I know that my God loves you all. So that's what matters to me. Yes. Oh, love you God, too, that was so good, y'all. <laughs> I really got chills. <laughs> that was so good. Um, and I just like, don't even, <laughs> I couldn't ask a better question. You know, I don't. That, that's exactly kind of how I want to leave this. And if you guys have, either you or Josh have anything that you want to share before we sign off, you know, a piece of advice maybe from hearing all of this. I know a lot of people mm -hmm. after they hear the episodes, they're like really stimulated, right? Like the way that mm -hmm. I'm about to be after this, I'm about to have another cup of coffee and get kind of crazy <laughs> with editing and stuff. <laughs> um, and, you know, I know people are going to feel stimulated, but I know for some people, they're like, okay, now what, you know what I mean? Or how can I, mm -hmm. you know, actively live out what I just heard John and Josh talking about? How can I actively, you know, do something about intersectionality? How do I find that within myself? So is there a piece of advice maybe from both of you that you'd want to share for, for what next yeah. after people listen to this episode? For sure. I'll go, um, I'll go first. Um, okay. I think that my biggest piece of advice would have to be, um, to just um, coming to know yourself. Um, I think that one of the biggest, that is one of the biggest challenges that we as people um, struggle with. Um, but in coming to know yourself and understand who you are, you're able to be realistic about the progress that needs to be made within your life, whether that be, um, you know, a negative or a positive thing. Um, knowing yourself is really really important and just discovering who you are and not being ashamed to discover who you are is really liberating it's something to be said for those who are um, like i mentioned earlier are in control of their narrative and know who they want to be and know that the people the people that they want to be surrounded with um i actually have a youtube channel i'm a content creator and yes. um i have a lot of content that involves traveling and things like that. But um, also, in addition to that, a lot of my content is based around um, just being very introspective about um, the way you view some of the systems uh, that we have created within our society and understanding the role that you play within those systems and understanding that, you know, sometimes the roles that we play um, are not beneficial and, and to everyone, are not inclusive to everyone, uh, does not give everyone a voice. Um, and I think being real with yourself, understanding things about yourself, like the different identities that you have, the intersecting identities that make you who you are, the privileges that 
um, you are able to, you know, um, enjoy that some may not be able to enjoy. Just knowing all parts of me, um, you, those things help us to become, you know, better members of this society. Um, because once you acknowledge something about yourself, um, you are able to, to, to work on the things that um, you want to see become better, you know? So that yeah. would probably be my biggest advice, you know, after hearing all of this information and absorbing all of the different topics that we've discussed, um, just, um, you know, a, a, a call to action or a charge to those listening uh, to really just take some time to be a little bit introspective, um, to understand the roles that you play um, and to, to, to know yourself in a way to where you are able to grow and benefit others around you in, in the most positive of ways. So yeah, what about you, Mr. John? Yeah, so you kind of stole my thunder right there with nice. that one. I, I, had a, I had a really smooth one-liner that I was gonna say with you. <laughs> <laughs> Own your truth but recognize the truth of others, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think it's so important that we are able to, like you mentioned, uh, humbly and openly navigate uh, these lives that we've been afforded, uh, but really recognize the fact that um, our truth is not the end all be all. And right. we have to keep our eyes open to the experiences and the life stories of other folks. Um, while still honoring like every single aspect of our identity, you know? Um, but since you took that one, uh, I <laughs> immediately thought of one of my, um, or an excerpt from one of my favorite scriptures, which is be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Mm -hmm. um, mm. And really I've taken that to heart um, throughout my lifetime, but especially within the last uh, year or so, because I think it has become ever so important for us to be open to um, just like evolution and how we um, and our thought and our uh, society evolves over time. Um, a lot of my work is defined by um, the ever-changing nature of society um, and the uh, expansive nature of diversity um, equity and inclusion. And even as a diversity practitioner, someone who looks at this stuff on a day-to-day -day basis, I still must remain open to new information and new perspectives and new ideas. Um, and all of that, like I mentioned earlier, each of those parts are pieces of a puzzle that I'm ultimately working to put together to form a larger, holistic, all-inclusive worldview. Um, so that would be my biggest piece of advice um, for the listeners out there. Um, just remain open um, to the the newness of life, you know? Um, yeah, I, I think that would have to be it. Yeah, that was so good. Thank you both so much. This was honestly better than I could have imagined. I might have cried, but thank God the vid this isn't recorded because <laughs> <laughs> you won't be able to see that. Um, but I just thank you both so much for for using your wisdom and what you've learned and your creativeness to to share that with other people. And I think it's something y'all are gonna do 
for the rest of your lives. And I can't wait to just be in the background kind of cheering y'all on. Um, but thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for being on this episode and to the listeners, I'm going to be sharing this with you guys soon and making sure that y'all are in, in every way possible, able, able to connect with John and Josh. Um, look at Josh's yes. YouTube channel, follow them on Instagram. I, you'll literally just be jealous just by looking at their profiles because they travel no. and they live and they explore <laughs> and somehow they also study and work. So I'm still trying to figure out how they do all that in, in one day, but, um, thank you both so much. And I love you both. Thank I you. Love we love you, you a ton, darling. <laughs>